0: From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So if you've watched the news lately, you might think that the world has never been worse. The brutality of ISIS and the ongoing war in Syria have triggered an epic humanitarian crisis. Children being hosed off treated after an alleged chemical
2: attack in Duma. The first picture's now coming in from Puerto Rico after taking a direct hit. More than
1: 1,400 people killed at this point in this massive 7.8 magnitude earthquake at that least hit.
3: 58 people now dead. More than 500 people wounded in a horrific shooting on the Las Vegas Strip. It's the deadliest mass shooting in modern United States history. Police say a 64-year-old... Okay, so man,
0: things seem pretty, pretty horrible, right? Fire
3: last well, actually...
0: According to this guy... Uh, Hi, yes. Can you hear me? The world Mm -hmm. is getting better. Uh, uh, Is is that right? uh, Mostly, yes. This is Steven Pinker. He's a psychology professor at Harvard and author of the book Enlightenment Now.
4: Starting with the most precious thing of all life, life expectancy, for most of human history, was about 30 years Mm -hmm. measured at birth. Now it's 71 years globally and 80 years in the developed parts of the world with increases in the uh, developing world as well, so the, the gap is closing. Mm-hmm. People are much more likely to be literate, to be educated. Their chance of dying in a war or a, an act of personal violence has decreased. In most parts of the world, um, work hours have decreased, so people have more leisure time, they have more disposable income, they can afford more small luxuries like uh, beer and TV and smartphones. So, yes, in mo- in, by, by most measures, there has been progress in the sense that the things that make life worth living have increased for more and more people compared to, to earlier historical
0: periods. All right. Now, when some people argue, hey, how can you say there's been progress? Look at all the suffering around the world, et cetera, et cetera. Your, your main argument is, look at the data. The data is clear. Progress is a fact of life. That's a way of putting
4: it. The other way of putting it is, yeah, there's suffering now, and there was more suffering in the past. Hmm. The less, the better. There are a lot of trends that indicate that at least certain kinds of suffering are going to continue to decrease if we continue our efforts to reducing them. So it's not just a matter of looking at the data. It's that the data show that, yes, there are obviously problems. Progress is not magic. Progress is not perfection. Progress is not a miracle. It doesn't mean that everyone is maximally happy. It doesn't mean that everything gets better for everyone, everywhere, all the time and always. And that would be a miracle. That's not progress. The question is, however bad things are now, were they worse in the past?
0: And those are questions Steven Pinker tackled on the TED stage.
4: Many people face the news each morning with trepidation and dread. Every day we read of shootings, inequality, pollution, dictatorship, war, and the spread of nuclear weapons. These are some of the reasons that 2016 was called the worst year ever. <laughs> Until 2017 claimed that record and <laughs> left many people longing for earlier decades when the world seemed safer, cleaner, and more equal. But is this a sensible way to understand the human condition in the 21st century? As Franklin Pierce Adams pointed out, nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. (laughs) You can always fool yourself into seeing a decline if you compare bleeding headlines of the present with rose-tinted images of the past. What does the trajectory of the world look like when we measure well-being over time using a constant yardstick. Let's compare the most recent data on the present with the same measures 30 years ago. Last year, Americans killed each other at a rate of 5.3 per 100,000, had 7 percent of their citizens in poverty, and emitted 21 million tons of particulate matter and 4 million tons of sulfur dioxide. But 30 years ago, the homicide rate was 8.5 per 100,000, Poverty rate was 12 percent, and we emitted 35 million tons of particulate matter and 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide. What about the world as a whole? Last year, the world had 12 ongoing wars, 60 autocracies, 10 percent of the world population in extreme poverty, and more than 10,000 nuclear weapons. But 30 years ago, there were 23 wars, 85 autocracies, 37% of the world population in extreme poverty, and more than 60,000 nuclear weapons. True, last year was a terrible year for terrorism in Western Europe with 238 deaths, but 1988 was worse with 440 deaths. What's going on? Is 1988 a particularly bad year? Or are these improvements a sign that the world, for all its troubles, gets better over time?
0: So so I'm assuming that you consider yourself to be an optimist. Um, I don't know if I am by uh, temperament, at least.
4: Uh, really? I, if I am, I certainly hope that hasn't colored the arguments that I make in Enlightenment now. And yeah. In fact, I, I wrote a book called The Blank Slate, sure. which had a, a somewhat dark view of human nature that said that utopia is impossible and, in fact, dangerous because people are flawed products of evolution and were saddled with a number of limitations and shortcomings and biases and illusions and uh, self-serving fallacies. And so that was actually a kind of, uh, I don't want to say it's a dark book, but I don't think anyone would have described it as an optimistic book. And what led me to make the case for progress is uh, being smacked in the face by surprising data. I was actually stunned to see a graph showing that the rate of homicide in England had fallen by a factor of about 50 since the Middle Ages, or another graph showing that the war deaths have been in dramatic decline since the end of uh, World War II or that that rape and sexual assault are down and child abuse is down. I came across graphs on other dimensions of human well-being such as prosperity and longevity and education and it was graph after graph that really convinced me that there was a story here that needed to be told. It's not that I I see the glasses half full or wear rose-tinted glasses but uh, reality convinced me that progress is a real thing.
0: So if progress is a real thing, can it be measured? And would all those numbers and data and statistics tell a complete story? Well, on the show today, we're going to try and get at the story behind those numbers and how complicated it can be to get the full picture. Well, for Steven Pinker, when it comes to the overall experience of being a human today, the numbers are pretty clear. The world is progressing, and life, on average, well, it's the best it's ever been. So, I mean, is there any middle ground between, you know, somebody who says, yes, I accept progress, but we also need to be really uh, careful about being overly, you know, somebody may interpret your work this way, by being overly optimistic, not overly pessimistic either, but we need to be realistic.
4: Yes, we need to be realistic. The book is not a celebration of optimism. The book is a uh, call for realism, arguing that if you are realistic, you
0: can't deny that there has been progress. Okay. So as you know, Stephen, there, there's been some criticism of your conclusions by your fellow academics and others. And they say, you know, you're being naive. You're, you're selectively looking at the numbers. So are they misinterpreting what, what you're arguing? I, I think so, yeah. And, uh, and
4: uh, they confuse progress as understanding the world, explaining it, trying out solutions, uh, recognizing problems and solving them as they, as they arise with some kind of miraculous, mystical uh, arc of automatic improvement. And that's, it's a m- misconception of progress to think of it as some uh, autonomous force.
0: The progress has to be driven by human action.
4: Absolutely. Because the, in fact, left to its own device, the universe is indifferent to us, and things
0: are, things get worse, not better. So progress is not inevitable. Absolutely not. But it's we have progressed up until this point. Exactly. Well, so here is a question. I mean, if if in fact all the data shows that the the recent history of of of, of our species has been um, a history of steady progress, why do so many people have a different Perception and a different view.
4: Partly, it's the, the inherent nature of journalism gives us a, uh, a picture of the world that is systematically distorted, because journalism reports usually reports events, and it's easier for an event to be uh, a, uh, a bad thing than a good thing, and so the. Beneficial developments tend to unfold a few percentage points a year and and compound, but there's never a Thursday in October in which they make a headline. As as Max Roser put it, the papers could have run the headlines, uh, headline, 138,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 25 years. But they never ran that headline, and as a result, a billion people escaped from extreme poverty and no one knows about it. We will never have a perfect world, and it would be dangerous to seek one but there's no limit to the betterments we can attain if we continue to apply knowledge to enhance human flourishing. This heroic story is not just another myth. Myths are fictions, but this one is true, true to the best of our knowledge, which is the only truth we can have. As we learn more, we can show which parts of the story continue to be true and which one's false, as any of them might be and
0: any could become. It's interesting because I think the, that climate change is the obvious anomaly here, right? And, and we're, we're going to talk about this more uh, with Paul Gilding later in the show. Um, but, there, I mean, there is measurable data that shows that things are getting worse, like the, the data shows that climate change continues to get worse.
4: Uh, that's right, yes. This isn't a paradox because, again, progress doesn't mean that by magic, everything always gets better. Mm. Progress means to the extent to which we solve problems, they get better, and the extent to which we create problems, they get worse. Uh, Climate change is related to some of the other measures of progress in that we have achieved some of our affluence by burning carbon and getting energy, and all progress ultimately depends on capturing energy. So whether progress will continue depends on how quickly we can transition to sources of energy that don't involve burning carbon. The case that I'm making for progress is not one of optimism in the sense of having a certain mental attitude. It's one of being aware of, uh, of certain facts. And likewise, there are uh, facts that are alarming, and we should be aware of those too. So I don't think that dealing with the threat of climate change is pessimistic. It's being aware of a uh, possibility for a terrible outcome, looking at the options for mitigating the worst risks and working towards implementing them. Is that optimism? Is that pessimism? It's just recognizing problems and
0: trying to solve them. So you you really believe in progress. Like, despite everything, you still believe in it. Oh, yeah, I do believe it. That is, I I, do
4: believe that continuing progress is possible. I think that there are, again, possible, and that means contingent on what we do now, all the more reason to try to inspire people. Because if we don't do them, then it won't happen.
0: Steven Pinker, he's a professor of psychology at Harvard. His most recent book is Enlightenment Now. The case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. On the show today, the story behind the numbers. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible first to smart water smart water aims to go beyond what others are doing taking inspiration from the clouds themselves smart water one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean crisp taste smart water vapor distilled for purity electrolytes for taste Thanks also to Trader Joe's, whose podcast Inside Trader Joe's takes you on a journey through fascinating food finds, astonishing culinary inventions, fresh approaches to classic dishes, and a new way to prepare dinner. Inside Trader Joe's brings you to a Trader Joe's tasting panel, to the Napa Valley for wine, and to a Canadian soup factory... For oatmeal, you'll find Inside Trader Joe's wherever you get your podcasts. More at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram.
3: Hey, this is Stretch Armstrong. And this is Bobby DeGarcia,
4: the hosts of What's Good. We're kicking off a new season with legendary singer-songwriter Erica Badu.
1: That's why they call me Fat Belly Bella, because they never know when I'm going to be impregnated.
4: (laughs) 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 Subscribe now.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about progress and whether the numbers we use to measure it give us the entire picture. Okay, we just heard from Steven Pinker. uh, And, you know, he wrote this book about progress called Enlightenment Now. And his conclusion is that the world is getting better, that, that it's irrefutable based on the numbers. So
3: do you agree with that? I know that book well. I'm an admirer of the book and its author, but I'm not quite convinced by his message. This is Tyler Cowen. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he writes a blog called Marginal Revolution. When I look at the same numbers about wars throughout human history, for instance, I tend to think the pattern is major wars become less and less frequent, but they haven't stopped altogether. And when each one comes, it's worse than the one before it. So I'm reminded of the saying, I don't know how World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. So I'm not as optimistic as Pinker. I think nuclear proliferation remains a major issue. And at some point, those weapons will be used. So the fact that we have a lot of linear trends with apparently positive extrapolations It's ignoring the fact that wars, when they come, are much deadlier, riskier, and more destructive. I definitely agree with Pinker that most trends are positive. We should not be doomsayers. The creative potential of mankind is enormous. Uh, But nonetheless, we need to look at all the numbers.
0: Do you think that numbers and data, things that you study and look at all the time, can
3: tell a complete story? I don't think anyone ever can tell a complete story. Numbers are important. They are undervalued by the public. But that said, one needs to be cautious when numbers are cited selectively. Always ask yourself, what are the other sides of this elephant? What are the numbers I am not hearing about? If I knew other numbers, would that in fact end up making this a messier story? And most of the time, the answer to those questions is definitely yes.
0: But we humans, we have a... Uh, Wouldn't you argue that? Wouldn't you agree that we have this natural, almost innate appreciation for and responsiveness to
3: stories, to narrative? I think it's biologically programmed in us. That's exactly why stories are dangerous. So I love to read fiction. I'm not advocating that we abolish stories. When you're trying to communicate information succinctly to other individuals, you have to use stories. But at the end of the day, think of it as looking for a competitive advantage. If you can see past the stories and see greater complexity and why that might make the world a different place from what other people are thinking, that's a source of competitive advantage for you.
0: Here's more from Tyler Cowan
3: on the TED stage. Uh, There's a book by Christopher Booker, he claims there are really just seven types of stories. There's Monster, Rags to Riches, Quest, Voyage and Return, Comedy, Tragedy, Rebirth. You don't have to agree with that list exactly, but the point is this, if you think in terms of stories, you're telling yourself the same things over and over again. Uh, There was a study done, we asked some people, uh, people were asked to describe their lives. And when asked to describe their lives, what's interesting is how few people said mess. It's it's probably the best answer. I don't mean that in a bad way. Mess can be liberating, mess can be empowering, mess can be a a way of drawing upon multiple strengths. But what people wanted to say was, my life is a journey. 51% wanted to turn his or her life into a story. 11% said, my life is a battle. Again, that's a kind of story. 8% said my life is a novel, 5% my life is a play. But again, we're imposing order on the mess that we observe and it's taking the same patterns. And the thing is, when something is in the form of a story, often we remember it when we shouldn't. In a perfect
0: world, how would people assess information? How would they respond to information?
3: I think media, mainstream media in the United States has improved significantly over the last 15 years in terms of how well it uses and interprets numbers. I think some of that has come about through the Internet, that journalists are better able to self-educate themselves. So if you look at, say, uh, the website 538, or if you look at Sportometrics, which uses numbers, or you look at the New York Times feature, the Upshot, how numbers are used in their stories. And all of these instances, I've seen the world get much better. Uh, I think there's room for much further improvement, but I also think a lot of the problem is in the audience. Audiences don't always want the truth. It's easier in some ways to dismiss numbers you don't like. People want mood or resentment or feelings of self-righteousness out of news stories. And so often it becomes a, a kind of partisan issue. So if you think, which set of stories do you end up hearing? You end up hearing the glamour stories, the seductive stories, and again, I'm telling you, don't trust them. They're people using your love of stories basically to manipulate you. And uh, pull back and say, what are the messages? What are the stories that no one has an incentive to tell? And start telling yourself those, and then see if any of your decisions change. That's one simple way – you can never get out of the pattern of thinking in terms of stories, but you can improve the extent uh, to which you think in terms of stories and make some better decisions. So how do we do that? How, How do we make better decisions? I think it's important to point out to people what are the biases of stories. So a lot of storytelling has a good versus evil bias built into it, Mm. when in fact both sides of a dispute may have varying degrees of good and evil. I think a particular bias we see in the news is a bias toward negativity. So when something goes wrong, it makes for a story. But no one has a headline, world economy grew again this year you know, at 4.3%, life expectancy increased by some small amount. It's not very exciting. It feels like ordinary business. So people overstress the negative. They think crime is more frequent than it is. They think natural disasters are a greater risk than in fact they are. And I think this can be explained to people and to some extent we can undo that bias. I, I think, I have a feeling that if you were a Hollywood
0: screenwriter, you would be like broke. Like nobody really, Tyler, you need an editor. Like we just, we can't do all the nuance here.
3: There's a reason why I'm not a Hollywood scriptwriter, correct? Yeah. But there are other roles in life which will perhaps never be as popular as Hollywood movies or TV shows where you can nonetheless get some messages through. And I, I would like to see more people doing that. One is always seeking improvements at the margin, right? There's never a perfect solution. It's part of the messiness.
0: Tyler Cowan, he's a professor of economics at George Mason University, You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, the story behind the numbers.
1: I will warn you guys, I'm always off mic, and everyone complains that I breathe too much. This is
0: journalist and writer Hannah Rosen, and you might recognize her voice from the NPR podcast Invisibilia.
1: That's the 100% things I get from Invisibilia. Lisa's like, stop breathing! I can't Um, even think! That's why your show sounds better
0: than us. Now, before becoming a podcast host... Hannah was a writer for The Atlantic, and she also ran Slate's women's site, Double X, which is why we wanted to ask her about measuring progress when it comes to women. So um, when I say the word progress, what, what does that word mean to you?
1: The most clean definition of progress for me is more opportunities and less restrictions for the greatest number of people. You know, if you think about it in terms of men and women, there are various points in history where the possible roles for women were much too restrictive. But if you look at a hundred years of history, decade after decade, there's a lot of movement for women and very little movement for men. About a decade ago, right after
0: the recession, Hanna was going through some job numbers and she noticed something pretty remarkable, something that signaled a huge economic shift for women.
1: Lots of jobs that were associated with men were dropping off the map one after another. There are just lists of professions. They go from nurse to ship worker to technological assistant to journalist. It's every profession in a list. And then you have projections of the professions most likely to grow and the professions that are absolutely disappearing. Most of the professions that were absolutely disappearing were professions that were traditionally associated with men. Most of the professions that were growing were professions that were traditionally associated with women.
0: So today, a decade on, we know some of the basics of this story, a decline in manufacturing jobs and a rise in service sector jobs. But Hanna noticed this back in 2009. And when she put all the numbers together, a much bigger picture emerged. So she gave a talk about what she found at the very first TED Women conference.
1: If you think about this, if you just open your eyes to this possibility and start to connect the dots, you can see the evidence everywhere. For every two men who get a college degree, three women will do the same. Women, for the first time this year, became the majority of the American workforce. Over 50% of managers are women these days. And in the 15 professions projected to grow the most in the next decade, all but two of them are dominated by women. So here you have a generation of young women who grow up thinking of themselves as being more powerful earners than the young men around them. Certainly this is not the first time that we've had great progress with women. The 20s and the 60s also come to mind. But the difference is that back then, it was driven by a very passionate feminist movement that was trying to project its own desires. Whereas this time, it's not about passion and it's not about any kind of movement. This is really just about the facts of this economic moment that we live in. The two hundred thousand year period in which men have been top dog is truly coming to an end, believe it or not, and that's why I talk about the end of men.
0: So, so you wrote a book about this, and it's actually it's actually called The End of Men. Yeah. And uh, what, what does that mean? Like, what do you what do you mean by that?
1: I mean, okay. so what does the end of men mean? It's the end of the assumption of male dominance. That's no longer what we assume to be the order of our current universe. Um, You know, the end of an assumption of male order in the family and the male breadwinner and all of these roles that we slot men into and have assumed that they occupy, all of those things are being questioned now. What the economy requires now is a whole different set of skills. You basically need intelligence, you need an ability to sit still and focus, to communicate openly, to be able to listen to people, and operate in a workplace that is much more fluid than it used to be. And those are things that women do extremely well, as we're seeing. If you look at management theory these days, a leader is somebody who can foster creativity, who can basically build teams and get them to be creative. And those are all things that women do very well. And then on top of that, that's created kind of a cascading effect. Women enter the workplace at the top, and then at the working class, all the new jobs that are created are the jobs that wives used to do for free at home. Child care, elder care, and food preparation. So those are all the jobs that are growing, and those are jobs that women tend to do.
0: I think it's it's fair to say that it's certainly a better time to be a professional woman than, than you know 1990, 1980, 1960.
1: Yes. Why did I pause before saying yes? Well, let me just say cleanly, yes, absolutely. There's a lot more opportunities. There's a lot more job growth. do you want to know about my hesitation? Sure. Uh, there's two hesitations. One is that the jobs at the very, very top, which is really important because those are the sources of true power, has not shifted that much. So middle management has shifted a huge amount, kind of um, working class jobs shifted mm-hmm. a huge amount, but the very top has not shifted that much. And the second hesitation comes from the fact that these are low paying jobs.
0: So seeing these numbers as pure progress is is a little tricky here, right? I mean, it, it sounds like it makes you uncomfortable interpreting it that way.
1: Um, it doesn't actually make me uncomfortable because I like to zoom outwards. I will say it made many readers of my book uncomfortable. I got tremendous resistance from feminists to the idea of calling this progress. And that's because, I mean, that's for several reasons. One is is the cultural backlash that we are seeing hugely now. I mean, you, you can see the election of Trump that way. You can see... Uh, social dynamics such as marriage. There's been a profound change in American marriage patterns. Well,
0: explain that. For What you mean by that?
1: Okay. So we haven't talked about this yet, but there's college-educated marriage patterns, which are the happiest, most settled, uh, most wonderful marriages that people have measured in a really long time. But most of Americans are not college-educated. That's only 30% of Americans. For most of Americans, divorce rates and kind of rates of broken families are exactly where they were in the 70s. Lots of divorce, huge rise in single motherhood. Um, This has been going on in black families since the 70s, when factories sort of moved out of the city, has migrated to white families as factories sort of moved out of smaller towns. And so you have to reckon with the fact that there are a lot of angry, displaced men who resent the rise of women and blame the rise of women for a lot of their problems. This whole thesis really came home to me when I went to a men's group in Kansas. And these were men who had been contractors or they had been building houses and they had lost their jobs after the housing boom. And they were in this group because they were failing to pay their child support. And the instructor was telling them they no longer had any moral authority, that nobody needed them for emotional support anymore, and they were not really the providers. So who were they? And what he did was he wrote down on the board $85,000 and he said, that's her salary. And then he wrote down $12,000. That's your salary. So who's the man now, he asked them. She's the man now. And that really sent a shudder through the room. And that's part of the reason I like to talk about this, because if we don't acknowledge it, then the transition will be pretty painful. But if we do take account of it, then I think it will go much more smoothly.
0: So, so you know, this book comes out, I think, 2012. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, Six seven years on since the book came out, um, I mean, you you almost seemed to predict the the consequences of not dealing with this disruption, which which happened is happening.
1: Oh, wow! Is it happening? I mean, I spend a lot of time on the manosphere, you know, which is the man part of the web. It is. Utterly dominated by biological determinism, that women have a certain role and men have a certain role and that the fact that women have subverted that role is destroying society. Do you
0: think that that perspective is just kind of fleeting or do you think that that has a potential to actually take root?
1: Oh, it is taking root. And you know this is a thing Susan Faludi predicted in her book, Backlash, which is about this very idea. Every time you have forward motion economically, any kind of progress for women, it's accompanied by a giant tidal wave of cultural backlash. Hmm. And that's exactly the moment we're in right now.
0: But it seems like that, that tidal wave of backlash doesn't have quite the impact of the ultimate progress. In other words, two steps forward, one step back.
1: I think that's right. I think it's two steps forward, one step back. I mean, the way I think of these numbers is progress, like all of history is jagged. Like hmm. there isn't usually a straight line you can draw upwards or downwards. Um, you know what? You know what is my hesitation here? What? Lots of power hierarchies have worked in lots of different ways across the span of history, but not the male-female hierarchy. Hmm. Is it just consistent over every society over the millennia forever. And so why is that? You know, why is that the one that's so hard to break? Is that a cultural story that we tell ourselves? It is remarkably consistent over history.
0: Except it's breaking now. We're we're watching that happen, right?
1: Yeah, we're watching it happen.
0: So, I mean, in a hundred years from now, can we say, can we assume that things will be even better?
1: Well, it's true in all futuristic societies that project forward. The woman is commanding the fleet. So (laughs) maybe, maybe we can. Yeah. That's Hannah Rosen.
0: Her book is called The End of Men. You can watch her entire talk at TED.com. And you can check out more stories from Hannah on the NPR podcast Invisibilia. On the show today, the story behind the numbers. I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Hotel Tonight, an app that makes it easy to book awesome hotels at amazing rates. They're basically a matchmaker between top-rated hotels that have unsold rooms and people who want to book those rooms. And even though the name's Hotel Tonight, you can actually book in advance. To start scoring great deals at hotels you actually want to stay at, download the Hotel Tonight app right now.
4: Our Up First team goes to work while you're sleeping. That way you wake up to the freshest take on the day's news.
5: It's the 10-minute morning news podcast from NPR. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, how the numbers don't always tell a single story especially when it comes to measuring progress, even numbers
2: the whole world seems to agree on,
0: like gross domestic product.
2: So gross domestic product is a statistical tool created in the 1930s. This is economist
0: Michael Green.
2: It was not uh, something handed down by God on tablets of stone, as we sometimes talk about it. Um, It's a statistical tool that tries to measure how much is the economy producing each year, adding up all the different things that are produced and saying what's the total value of production of the economy. And Michael says that while GDP alone was helpful back then in
0: managing the economy, it has since become the only defining measure of economic progress.
2: We divide our world into rich countries and poor countries based on these economic numbers, these GDP numbers, and then we count that as success and we tell the countries that have got less GDP that the thing they've got to do is just get more GDP, and then they will be a better country. We've ignored the fact that you know GDP says nothing about the environment, GDP says nothing about fairness. Hmm. It's just telling us what's the value of what's being produced in the country every year. So one thing you can find is that it can jump about quite a lot, especially if you get an earthquake uh, or a natural disaster. This happened in Japan a few years ago. Big earthquake. So there was a lot of money spent on reconstruction. GDP jumped. So if you're thinking that GDP is progress, you'd have said the earthquakes are good for Japan's progress. Now, clearly, huh. that's a bit weird. And then second, similarly, GDP counts any activity. It makes no judgment about whether the economic activity is productive or not. So if you're spending money on prisons and bombs and uh, tear gas or whatever, all these things that may be bad things, as long as they've got a market price and they're part of the production of the economy, GDP's counting them as being a positive step forward. So what are we not measuring So things that are essentially exchanged between us, which can be things like community and friendship, the fact that I can rely on a friend or neighbour, the fact that I have a place of belonging, none of these things are being counted. Michael Green picks up this idea from the TED stage. There have, of course, been efforts in the past to move beyond GDP. But I believe that we're living in a moment when we are ready for a measurement revolution. Today, I'd like to introduce you to the Social Progress Index. It's a measure of the well-being of society completely separate from GDP. It's a whole new way of looking at the world. The Social Progress Index begins by defining what it means to be a good society, based around three dimensions. The first is, does everyone have the basic needs for survival, food, water, shelter, safety? Secondly, does everyone have access to the building blocks to improve their lives, education, information, health, and sustainable environment? And then third, does every individual have access to a chance to pursue their goals and dreams and ambitions free from obstacles? Do they have rights, freedom of choice, freedom from discrimination, and access to the world's most advanced knowledge? Together, these 12 components form the Social Progress Framework. So, I mean, can everything you
0: measure be measured? Can, can, you, can you quantify it and, and create data and statistics out of them?
2: Well, I think we can do it well enough. So we're very much focusing on the outcomes. So it could be things like, what's the life expectancy? That's a hard number. Um, what's, the, um, what's the high school dropout rate? That's a hard number. Um, you know, what are we? What pollution are we putting into the environment? What's what? How many people are dying in road traffic accidents? And then we could also measure things which are more about how people feel. But those things matter. Things like, do people experience discrimination? Do people feel part of a community? And those are survey questions, but they're measuring a critical part of people's real lived experience. So, if GDP basically
0: tells us which economies are the largest in the world, it doesn't tell us which countries are the best places to live for just sustainability for our own well-being. It it, it tells us nothing, almost
2: nothing about that. Well, what we found is is that GDP tells us something, but it's not the whole story. So the Social Progress Index shows us that broadly, countries that are richer tend to have higher social progress. But it's definitely not destiny. So some of the richest countries in the world, like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, in per capita terms, actually have pretty middling levels of social progress. The United States, which has a very high level of GDP per capita, actually is not doing very well compared to other rich countries.
1: Hmm.
2: On the other hand, we find there are countries that have got a very modest income, like Costa Rica, that's got a level of social progress the same as, almost the same as some of the G7 countries. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing that a country
0: like the U.S., which is one of the richest countries in the world, does so badly when it comes to social progress.
2: Yeah, I mean, the United States results on social progress index are, are actually quite shocking. So the U.S. is the only really major industrial society that we've seen that consistently is underperforming on its um, social progress relative to its GDP per capita. So the U.S. is basically failing in using its wealth to deliver Real quality of life for citizens. So, in in our rankings, the U.S. is fifth in terms of GDP per capita, and nineteenth in terms of social progress. So, wow. it's a really, really strikingly poor performance from the U.S. I think paints a pretty stark picture. Now, some somebody might look at at the social
0: progress index and say, "Well, Michael, I mean, you know, the U.S. is a massive country with three hundred plus million people." And the countries that that seem to be doing well are much smaller, smaller populations. And so, you know, you're comparing apples to oranges.
2: Yeah, I mean, big countries do seem to have a harder job. That certainly is the case. But we can say even compared to sort of countries of, you know, that are also of a a good size like the other G7 countries – even then, the U.S. is not doing well. I think the issue is we find with the U.S., there's too many people falling off the bottom, achieving very, very low levels of social progress who have been left behind. And that's what's pulling the average numbers down for the U.S. Do you see the social progress index
0: as as something that could or should replace GDP or something that can work in parallel alongside GDP?
2: So we very really much see that it's there to work in parallel alongside. We've got a system of economic measurement. It's got so many flaws, and we've talked a lot about the flaws, but it's telling us something. Well, we have to recognise that it's not telling us the whole story. And so by counting those intangible things into tangible numbers through the Social Progress Index, we can actually help communities make choices about where they want to go and what kind of societies they want to build. Imagine if we could measure what non-profits Charities, volunteers, civil society organizations really contribute to our society. Imagine if businesses competed not just on the basis of their economic contribution, but on their contribution to social progress. Imagine if we could hold politicians to account for really improving people's lives. Imagine if we could work together government, business, civil society, me, you, and make this century the century of social progress. Thank you.
0: Michael Green, he's the CEO of the Social Progress Imperative. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about measuring progress and We can't really talk about progress without talking about the one thing that might unravel all of it. And that thing is climate change. So, Paul, in 2012, uh, you gave this very dark uh, TED Talk.
5: Let me begin with four words that will come to define this century. And your opening line was like, uh, the earth is full. The earth is full. It's full of us, full of our stuff, full of our waste, full of our demands. Like
0: you were saying, we're
5: kind of in trouble. In other words, to keep operating at our current level, we need 50% more Earth than we've got. Uh,
0: but now, you know, uh, six years on, uh, things are much better, right? We're, we're doing great, Right.
5: Not quite. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Look, it's, it's like living on your credit card. Um, when you're living on your credit card, life is good. Yeah. You know, you can buy the stuff you need. Life is ticking along. And then one day the bank calls and says, hey, I'm sorry, got to pay it back now. And Mother Nature is basically saying now, okay, the card is full. Time to start paying it back. And we don't want to. This is Paul Gilding. He's a writer and environmental activist. And uh, have been trying to convince the world to act on sustainability for 45 years or so, not very successfully. So while some of the numbers do tell a story of progress,
0: poverty is down, we're living longer and healthier, Paul says they also tell another story that we've been ignoring, a story about a world that's been growing too fast for too long. And now, he argues, we've reached the limit.
5: So the resources that keep us alive, that give us the water we need, the food we need, that make the oxygen that we breathe by processing the pollution, et cetera, et cetera, the capacity of the earth to support us is past its capacity.
0: Um, you know, we, we've heard from Steven Pinker about all of these amazing developments, mm-hmm. global developments, they're yep. irrefutable. I mean, I mean, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out from poverty. It, Seems like a pretty great story.
5: It's a great story. The problem is that we've got another three or four billion people who'd like to follow them. And they have every right to do so. The question is, physically, can we sustain that world? So what, in a practical sense, that means is that the food supply becomes unstable. We can't produce enough food cheaply enough and get to the right places to feed enough people. And, and political instability accelerates and conflict between nations accelerate, trade slows down, and all those things lead to an economic downturn, and then we crash. Many of you will be thinking, but surely we can still stop this. If it's that bad, we'll react. Here's more from Paul Gilding on the TED stage. Let's just think through that idea. Now, we've had 50 years of warnings. We've had science proving the urgency of change. We've had economic analysis pointing out that not only can we afford it, it's cheaper to act early. And yet the reality is we've done pretty much nothing to change course. We're not even slowing down. Last year on climate, for example, we had the highest global emissions ever. The story on food, on water, on soil, on climate is all much the same. So when does this transition begin? When does this breakdown begin? In my view, it is well underway. We see spiraling debt crises, we see growing inequality, we see money's influence on politics, we see resource constraint, food and oil prices, but we see mistakenly each of these issues as individual problems to be solved. In fact, it's the system in the painful process of breaking down, our system of debt-fueled economic growth of ineffective democracy, of overloading planet Earth, is eating itself alive.
0: Okay, so uh, let's say the numbers are going to lead us in one of two directions. Direction A, we say, all right, we need to freeze growth. We need to start doing that now. What do we do? How can we do that?
5: Yeah, so for a start, We are not going to be able to convince a population who's been brought up on growth as the pre-existing requirement for quality of life to suddenly stop growing. So what we need to do is to divert growth dramatically and urgently to accelerate the economy rapidly to stop climate change and other issues getting out of control.
0: Wait, I sorry, I didn't get that. We need to accelerate the economy to stop climate change. is not that doesn't isn't that that make things worse?
5: No, because to accelerate the economy in the direction of stopping climate change, we decelerate it dramatically in terms of the spending and consumption on fossil fuels, for example. So you know we need to wipe out whole industries, hmm. companies. In the fossil fuel sector in oil and coal and gas need to cease to exist. They need to be replaced by other companies that by the way create more jobs. We could eliminate fossil fuels from the economy right inside 10 years and it would be a positive economic impact. We're also by the way inventing new technology all the time to make it better right. We've got extraordinary opportunities in artificial intelligence, in solar power, in autonomous vehicle and transport as a service, so we have to think differently about how we consume. Doesn't mean we don't consume. Doesn't mean we go and live in caves. Doesn't mean we have a horrible quality of life. But it does mean we don't live a life that results in most of our stuff ending up in the oceans and landfill and incineration because that's not a sustainable economy. Then we're going to have to face up to: is that enough? But in the meantime, it will be enough. Are you optimistic? It's a funny question, which I get asked a lot. And yes, fundamentally, I am. Um, I'm optimistic because I think it's a better strategy for driving change. I'm also optimistic because if I look at history, we tend to do crisis response really well. In my book, The Great Disruption, I talked about imagining being a couple of guys in Amsterdam having coffee on the canal and talking about World War II Mm. in 1938, (laughs) right? So it hasn't started. And, and you're
0: like, ah, this thing's never going to get off the like, ground. Come
5: on. So you're telling come me, like, we're going to kill 60 million people in a conflict. It's going to go on for like five years. People it's would say, cost oh, us.
0: Paul, you're just come a worry on. ward. Come on.
5: It'll be okay. It'll be okay. Yeah, okay exactly. Okay, I got you right. Fine. Right? So but? if you'd painted that picture then of World War II, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, of the you know invasion of all these countries, of this catastrophe and, and the Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera, people would say, oh, my God, that's the end of the world. We'll never survive that yeah. and we'll never recover the emotional, political trauma of that process. And look what happened. It was horrible, it was tragic, it was like a, beyond our comprehension how bad it was, but then society moved on. And, and we went through that process and we successfully moved into a different era. So the point is, it's always hard to imagine these things before they come. Yeah. It's very hard to prevent them for that reason and therefore we wait until the crisis is completely out of control. And it's like, it's well past the last minute in which you have to respond. And then we react and then we do extraordinary things. And that's the essence of my story that I'm telling. Now, that wouldn't help if this was really hard to fix. But the reality is there is just amazing amounts of possibility as to how we could fix this. So this is not like World War II. World War II was really hard to imagine how the Allies could win at the beginning. This is not hard to imagine how we could win. we just got to decide to do it.
0: Paul Gilding, he's the author of the book The Great Disruption and the former global head of Greenpeace. You can see his full talk at TED.com.
4: Please don't tear this world asunder Please take back this fear we're under I demand a
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening to our episode, The Story Behind the Numbers, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Diba Motasham, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Megan Shellon. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.